Welcome to Evolve, reinventing leadership, building freedom cultures, with CEO and award-winning author, Yvette Bethel. This podcast is dedicated to providing leaders with solutions to build trust, inspire authentic transformation, and improve engagement. Learn about new and tested ways you can revitalize your culture, empower people, and transform your results. This is Yvette Bethel, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to Evolve. Everything within an organization is interconnected. This connectivity supports productivity and multiple types of flow that have a personality and tempo of their own. In the workplace, as with any ecosystem, interconnectivity and flow are enhanced by the process of balancing which is essential for organizational sustainability and adaptability. Evolve explores cultural transformation using the interconnectivity flow and balance methodology. IFB is an, a method grounded in trust, integrity, and emotional mastery, and is a roadmap to both self-evolution and cultural transformation. It explores ideas that translate into practical action that can be applied to both complicated and complex organizational challenges. Today, we are here to explore how you can diagnose performance gaps within your team with a coach who specializes in working with innovative teams, Robert Ogilvie. Robert is an emotional intelligence coach who deploys scientific psychometrics, coaches leaders, and transforms teams for better engagement, agility, and strategic insight. He's also an innovation project manager, and in his role, Robert recruits researchers and technical staff, analyzes performance to improve team capacity and business value, and leads strategic partnerships, especially R&D, technology projects involving AR and AI and improvement projects. Hello, Robert, and welcome to Evolve. Glad to be here. I, I gotta say, I, uh, I know that you're an amazing introverted lady, but all that actually means is that all that introverted time is you uh, creating this master plan and then being able to lay out your sest, and so that, that was wonderful. <laughs> Well, welcome. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to be here. I, I, I love, too, that you were able to make such a rich model, which was dealing with different kinds of flow and how trust is just the cornerstone for other great things. So um, I'm glad that there are more coaches uh, around the world that are using these kinds of approaches. Absolutely. So, Robert, I know that you're interested in many disciplines, so I'd like for you to share with our audience what got you started on your path to team and, and individual coaching. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, so really, in, in my studies, as much as I initially was into to programming and tech, academically, I'm mostly a psychology guy. And then uh, I was uh, then as I started to realize in my twenties that I actually had some really good sales and management skills, uh, and also a, a bit of experience as an army officer. And then later on. Um, I kept having, I kept coming back to tech. There was something around wanting to work with what was possible, but ultimately, again, I'm a people person. Uh, psychology was my own discipline, and I love dealing with and leading people and helping people. Mm -hmm. 
So as I was drawn towards these tech management end of things, I found myself in, in terms of all the different functions that were needed, um, ever more gravitating towards the ops and the people development HR sort of functions. Mm-hmm. And, and so initially I was, you know, when I didn't know these existed, I thought, oh, well, the only kind of applied use case, you know, or the main applied use case of psychology or like clinical or counseling. Um, and once I realized there were all these kind of niche management functions that were around developing others, yeah. um, that's really what bit me. It, but, but moreover than that, because I have this ongoing interest in tech and the creative and innovative options that come out of tech, and particularly as multiple innovations start to interact and synergize, there's something in that where I have just an ongoing love affair with innovation teams that are bringing this together. And so it really makes me a nerd whisperer, which is, (laughs) I I, I love to deal with, (laughs) because she's a brilliant nerd herself. Well, well, yeah, but we need to be uh, politically correct. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I should say many of the clients I'm dealing with, not just are they working in different uh, intellectual and technology fields, but um, they're often, they're introverts, right? And so these are yeah. these are often either some combination of um, either kind of creative and free thinking and or very analytic people. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of deep knowledge, deep thought, expertise, and a proneness towards either the planning or the innovative ideas that come with that. And yeah. the areas where they tend, so that means almost on an individual level, they're p- prone to working well themselves. But, but what the areas where they tend to need to uh, help with is all these communication and emotional skills as they're realizing they need to interoperate with others. And so one of the, the driving forces around that is that as our innovations become ever more cross-disciplinary, it is ever more impossible for one person to wear all of these hats. So we're dealing with ever more cross-functional teams, which is to say innovation by its nature is more cross-functional. And so necessarily, um, you're, you're bringing together teams of these diverse knowledge experts to be able to, to do this. And this means you're, you're training up all these communication and EQ skills in what is often these, um, these introverted knowledge experts, right? So that, that's part of uh, what I do well and the people that I tend to work really well with. And but, even, oh, go ahead. I, I was gonna ask you, um, just for the audience, for the sake of their understanding, um, you work predominantly with innovation teams and they have some very specific um, characteristics now, what about those? What about people who don't work with with innovation teams? Can you tell us the differences and the similarities? Sure, sure. So the good thing is a lot of the same theory stuff applies to any team, um, and they're really all it means is there's a few things on the far end of innovation teams which are just a bit more amped up. So there, there's two particular things that innovation team, teams need to need particularly quite a lot of, which is psychological safety. And the other one uh, is described, or at least in one psychometric report, it uses the term uh, learning orientation needed. Because if you think about what innovation is tasked to do, is that you're exploring, there's a kind of higher risk failure, and you're going into kind of ambiguous territory. So you don't even necessarily even have clear rubrics yet to kind of figure out what success or failure is. Yeah, and um, and so by its nature, it's just a little bit more ambiguous. But but most of these apply to all teams, and it, it, and they're not going to be stuff that blows you away. It's stuff around building trust. Um, it's stuff around are people there for the right intrinsic mission, and then it becomes more structural accountability, 
pieces. There's lots of different ways to break it down. Um, but the, a team is a team and a lot of the same rules apply. So even if you're not leading an innovation team and you're hearing this, don't worry, just, just edit that word out of your mind and just think about it. You know, think of the teams that you work with in your day-to-day -day life. Now, when you're diagnosing your teams, um, innovation or otherwise, what are the conditions for team effectiveness? What are you looking for? So that's a really good question. And, and um, just to touch base uh, with what we're talking about here, this is so the work produced by Dr. Christopher Lowe and Ruth Wagerman. And mm -hmm. then there's a bunch of other people's work they drew on to make this. So this is something called uh, the Team Diagnostic Survey, the TDS. But it's actually, it's, it's the most comprehensive team level tool we're using. And one of the reasons team level assessments are, are important is that um, individual factors are actually a really low contributor, about 10% of performance. And so if, if you're only ever coaching individuals, you know, it's a drop in the, buck, in the bucket of what's possible. Once you're dealing with things at a team or group level, that's another 30%. So that's effective enough. And you're, the good thing about that is there's still one-to-one -one relationships you're having. And the remaining 60% is all the, the organizational and strategic context it finds itself within. Um, so that that's what this psychometric is designed to do. But back yeah, to your question. Go ahead. Uh, I'm, I mean, you're getting me all into this because you, you mentioned about, uh, and we're going to come back to my question. <laughs> I have another one. <laughs> you mentioned uh, those individual factors not um, having the kind of impact that people think they do. No. Um, no they can don't. you say a little bit more about that? Because a lot of organizations drive people to compete with each other instead of collaborate. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, so so that that's part of it, which is you could say you know an, an underutilized kind of team level focus and too much of focus on the individual. Um, part of that is to say that um, the uh, forget even the org factors for a second at that team and group level. Um, if the 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 tasks are given to them, the way they need to work is given to them, they need to be supervised in a certain way, and other factors about how they work are ever more dictated to them. Part of actually their group process juice, which is something they could actually hone and optimize, you've yeah. already taken that away from them. The other thing at their worst is that, so, so as we talk more about these conditions, they actually break them down into what they call three enabling, and the, the basic three or three, they call, they call them three essential conditions, which is to say, these are essential, and if you don't have these, these are gonna distort the rest of everything else. So don't bother focusing on these other things if you don't have the three essentials, right, which are real team, right people, and compelling purpose. So to, to spin that in a negative sense, if you're surrounded by the wrong people, the people that aren't the right balance of diversity, that don't have a good attitude here, um, that don't feel like a real team, and that particularly don't resonate with that purpose. And then you're told, oh, but Bob, you're a vet. It's your fault. Just buck it up and grit through it and, and produce better because you want to compete and stay effective, right? It's mm -hmm. like, well, no, that's, um, th this is not us working smarter or certainly kind of warmer or mostly intelligent. This is just a kind of uh, um, I, I would actually frame it as a, a failure of pace setting leadership. If everyone just competes with everyone else, we'll all just be running at a hyper pace and, and, and that that is ever sustainable. And it's like wrong and wrong. So when you're diagnosing, you said that you use the, uh, the team diagnostic survey. 
Yes. Is there anything else that you use and, and how do you um, synthesize that information so that it's uh, something that the team can, can use in the future for their evolution? That's, that's a great question. So the, the favorite psychometrics that I use and the top ones are actually all dynamic surveys, which are tapping into either some type of performance habit or some competence. So actually, so Yvette, you and I are both trained uh, in emotional intelligence tools. And so again, those are actually emotional competencies um, that someone is demonstrating. So they actually can change over time. Right. Uh, and then even TDS is like that too. So as, as the name implies, it's like a type of diagnostic report and you could run it as frequently as about every six months and get different results. And so it becomes a good KPI check-in. So these can change over time, but how do you synthesize that? That's part of the magic of why you get a good coach because um, I can give you all the data in the world and trust me, as an ENTP, I love data. If it was ever like, Bobby, you know, we have a whole bunch of data we'd like to explore together, I would say, perfect, I'm your man. But um, the jam of it is what you do with that data, right? Um, yeah. I, one of the things we're experiencing more and more, and we, we can all relate to over the past decade, is going from having not enough access to data to far too much access to data. So part of the, one of the strategic goals of executives of, of upper management is that they have to, they have more data to pull in and particularly more data to strategize and create meaning or coherence around. And so their ability to separate signal from noise and pattern recognize is important. And, and actually, so we know that one of the eight EQ competencies is pattern recognition. So it is a critical skill. And actually another one is consequential thinking. And so if we're talking about applying patterns for the sake of, let's say, business strategy, innovation strategy, again, these are, these are actually two separate EQ competencies. These are um, uh, ever more important for executives to, to cultivate, right? And that is, that is something that comes out of being exposed to lots of data and being able to pick out effective patterns. But what, I mean, and we're talking about data and, and surveying people. And I, I find that in real life, uh, in some organizations, there's something that exists called um, survey exhaustion. And um, what if you encounter a, a company that's you know been surveyed or they've been you know interviewed you know sure. to death, and people are just like you know not into it, and they're just gonna say whatever it is that they think you want to hear. Yeah, like, the data's not very clean, how right? How effective is that diagnostic, and how can you back that up so that you get uh, information that's usable and accurate? So if you think the, you know, the, the, the main premise of why you would involve any kind of executive or organizational coach is that you want better performance. And if it's that bad, I, so back to the, the point that there are kind of known models of what needs to come together and then what leads, what's next and what's next. And so mm -hmm. if it's that uh, palpable and obvious what the problems are, Here's the good news. You, you don't need a complicated 30-page diagnostic to tell you that. That should actually be pretty helpful. And exactly. so that's a good basis for coaching work, right? Exactly. Um, and so, I, I mean, here's another way to frame when data is most useful. When there's lots of options that you either don't understand or it seems like there's a lot of good trade-offs between them and you, you can't decide between one option or another, that's a good time when you'd want data because that lets you kind of dig into the crunch and 
so one of the good things that TDS is trying to get you to understand is that, yes, we know the end game of it is that you want better cast performance. You want your people happier, what they would call your member satisfaction, and you want good group, group processes, right? But there's a whole slew of a dozen high-level variables that compose that, and three or four things under each of those. So there's about 50 variables there, right? It goes as deep as you, you want to do it. Of course, it's easy to think of we want to be happy and want better task performance, but once you realize there's a causal chain that leads to that, um, that's, I think, the long-term uh, expectation setting, which is hard for coaches because normally when a business organization is engaging a coach or a coaching organization, um, they can have, it can have a Band-Aid quality where they're saying, well, I have this particular problem. Yeah. Expediently solve it by messing with my people and org structure in some way, and I, I need results efficiently. Right. And, yeah. and, when, and, and I think, you know, for all the downsides of things like balanced scorecard, I think this is one of the things it did well, is it was trying to show that, you know, there are upstream and downstream things which kind of come to fruition faster or slower. And, and so then you're kind of dealing with timeframes, saying, well, look, listen, is this a short-term thing and that we're kind of focusing on sales this is a long-term thing where we can actually focus on people and processes or is this even a big premise thing about like what why is the organization even here do we need to rethink the way we're, we're adding value um but but that's that's a, let me ask you about that because um there's a balancing act that needs to happen when you're taking a team through an evolutionary process and you're balancing people and process mm-hmm. and and from your ex- your experience where do you put the emphasis so i, I i'm an entp i love people is, i love tell, ideas tell our I, audience what that is <laughs> yeah sorry not everybody knows so, the acronyms you, you like to use. <laughs> so this a disclaimer uh myers-briggs type you know, mbti it's not so reliable so it's if you were to measure it and remeasure it it's it's not quite as fixed over time as it would like to say it is, um, but it, it it has some use, and particularly I think the best coaches I know would describe it as a good self-feedback tool. So I am one of the 16 types that is uh, an ENTP, so that's an extroverted, intuitive, thinking, perceiving type. What does that mean? My jam is all about, um, so formally they would say extroverted intuition, which is like a fast creative pattern recognition, and then introverted thinking, which is like a deep data analysis thinking, and then my third is something called extroverted feeling, which is about harmonizing and making friends with others and kind of alliance building. Um, so I'm really energetic. I love ideas. And it's both a combination of I love exploring ideas. And then also when I'm, you know, the more professionally focused I am on this or that, I love to hone in and really analyze and say, okay, what's a great idea? What's part of a great strategy? What will hold up to rigor? Um, and it is, in that sense, one of the four temperaments that would be the kind of uh, the, the intuitive thinking type, which is, say, the rational or the pragmatic type. And so, yeah, it is, it is a kind of data nerd type, except for as an extrovert who's very adaptable. It's, it's a data nerd who's always exploring for more data and looking for cool, awesome solutions. A short answer would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> thank you, Bobby. And, and, and they need to work on brevity sometimes. <laughs> so back to the question. I don't even remember the question now that you uh, went down that road. Um, we, we were talking about people versus process. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So people versus process. So I, I would say I'm, I'm very much focused on the people end of things because so, so good co- coaching is trying to 
solve problems by, you know, short term, it might seem like consciousness raising or new perspectives. Uh, e even part of the thing, if you look at the, the literature around it, is that short term, even the kind of energy, and I think this, in, you know, in classic counseling, they would frame this as like the therapeutic alliance somehow, the, the fact that you have this committed rapport with someone who's there for your betterment and nothing else. I think that's where short term, some of the juice comes out of it. Long term, it actually is like you're trying to develop people but probably at an individual level. Um, and then that will they'll show up in their relationships and their work. Let, let's make this real for, for our listeners. Like, you know, what are the gaps that you typically see? So, um, oh, I would say about half my clients are back to the Myers-Briggs, INTJ or INFJs. And now, our people don't understand that, so let's use... Uh, so they are these these slow, deep thinking, introverted uh, kind of master planners or the INFJs right. are, right. they're very kind of, they're, they're trying to plan towards people. Now they are introverts, but they're, um, they're, they're people organizers is maybe a better way to think of an INFJ. Mm -hmm. um, but, but both of them as strong introverts um, can sometimes have a problem where they are not capturing their full value. And, and this might, I think this is actually a bit, more pronounced in tech industries um, that females can can kind of pass by invisibly. They can do more. You've, so you've probably heard the dichotomy at this point: visible versus invisible work. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm thinking of one of my clients in particular. Um, she's an INTJ. She works in the tech industry, um, and so she's working on stuff where, if you, so one. I, I told you that I use um, EQ assessments, right? So four success factors when we look at EQ are effectiveness, relationships, quality of life, and well-being, right? So normally when you're looking with at very professionally capable and successful people, um, they're going to have pretty good on effectiveness, they're going to have okay on relationships, and they're going to have really bad quality of life and really bad well-being. Why? Because they, they work too much, they live in a very lopsided way, and because they even live in a lopsided way, even the relationships around them are not very fulfilling and rich. Um, they're, they can be very imbalanced to people. Um, so, so some but, of the, some of the but I, I'd like for you to take the, the emphasis away from the individuals and let's look at the team. Um, because for instance, um, I, I come across uh, teams that um, or in compliance kinds of cultures, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the opposite of an innovation culture. Very much. Now, in a compliance culture, what you have is, um, you know, people are doing what they're told to do. They're not encouraged to be creative. And, um, you know, there's a lot of fear. And uh, so no a lot of punishment if someone tries something that wasn't right. expressly planned. Um, oh. And even a lot of uh, it's it's not it's the opposite of mentoring. It's almost like you're trying to constantly groom someone's behaviors back into a box, coupled with a bit of that. You know, you should you should be more like the leader, but but a, a number two version of the leader. So let's take your strategies or your approach to coaching and how would you apply it to a situation like that? Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point, um, and it's also very typical because it, I mean, at its best, it takes very strong personality to found a company, but that mm -hmm. can also put it at risk for pathology. We um, mm -hmm. uh, let, let's let's say even a, a few more dirty words. 
1% of the population are psychopaths, but we know more like 6% of executives are, like, you know, six times higher, right? So or, that, nas or narcissists. Or narcissists, or yeah. really anywhere in the cluster B, right? Cluster and B, yeah. So if you think of even as a dimensional trait, these people are much more prone to these, uh, the, uh, the emotional imbalance and the, um, uh, yeah, if, if you think of the, if you think of the EQ gaps that lead to a cluster B, right? And so, you know, so what's the classic dark triad? Uh, narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy. And I think now they even say that there's a fourth trait, which they will call aggressiveness or sadism, right? And so it makes sense that if you're a psychopath in the sense that you don't feel feelings, right? Even your own feelings, but certainly other people's feelings. It makes sense that you're Machiavellian because people are just objects. There is no real feelings. And so you can manipulate and do whatever you want which also naturally is to a sense of there is no world, there is no experience outside of your own locked in your head experience. So that, that makes you narcissistic, you're self-absorbed. And then also in that way can make you callous because you, um, but what about the people on the receiving end? Like, what, is, what do we do? <laughs> this is, what do we do? Okay, yeah. Right. What let's do, we do with okay. Let's, let's, let's sort this out. Good. Yeah. Okay. So, um, if we were, let's say, looking at this through the lens of TDS and some of the six conditions they're looking at, yeah. um, one of the fundamental things I would be asking, so so the three essentials are real team, right people, and compelling purpose. I, I can break those down further if you'd like, but yes. part of what compelling purpose is, is trying to ask is, is this a mission that resonates with the values of these people, and do they feel connected or committed to this mission right now? And what you'll probably find is that certainly the leader has a big mission and they want to kind of claim it's for others and smear it all over them. But do they naturally, organically, emotionally feel interested in this stuff? Mm -hmm. uh, no. Or what's sometimes even more common is that, you know, emotions are allowed to change over time. And um, if you think of particularly startups as almost like little business experiments, right? And yeah. that might start with goodwill. It might proceed for a certain duration. And then you might, for, for various good reasons, see that it's not feasible. And so that can also even change over time when you say, listen, when I started this job or from the outer optics of what I thought this organization was like, I thought I'd be interested. Six months into it, I see it's not as fun as I thought. I see the true nature of the product and what the service is all about. And you know, maybe it's not even as respectable as I think, but I'm, I'm no longer resonating with that mission. It's, it's really not fitting with me, right? And so that, that is, uh, you know, one of, one of these three nails in the coffin that it's like they're, they're just not feeling it. So um, the, you have the compelling purpose, which is what you're talking about. What about a real team and right values? Um, so, right, I'll, I'll deal with the right people piece first because okay. th this oh. starts actually to, to get into the capacity end of things. Mm -hmm. um, Right people is basically just looking at do they have the skills and are they sufficiently diverse? And so I, the, the skill piece is a bit easier to understand because if you understand what the team, what the function the team needs to do, it's either to say, well, do you have the background for this? So, you know, for example, my, my company's working with a mobile air, AR product and some drones. And so it's like, great, do you have the, the, the 3D programming skills with this language? Great. Do you have the backend programming language for this? Great. Do you have the drone? Pro okay. And yeah, but there's lots of ways you can assess that. So this, I think the skill piece is, is, is at least easier to assess. Now you still need mm -hmm. to find those people. The diversity piece is really interesting because there is a happy middle ground for diversity where there is a, basically a healthy amount that makes you better and more vital and gives you the range of perspectives. And so um, the two extremes you're trying to avoid there is if there's not enough 
diversity. And in some sense, this is about diversity of thought, diversity of personality and character. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's um, if there's not enough diversity, that is groupthink. That is lack of mental um, mental range. Or right. I, yeah, I sometimes almost even think of it as a kind of mental cowardice. There's a an, I don't know. A, I don't know if that that I, I don't know if you can. I don't know if you can sum it up as that because sometimes people are just uh, conditioned to think certain ways, and they sure. you know they believe what they're thinking. You That's can't true. really uh, call it all cowardice. I, I agreed. And, and I will say, as an ENTP, I know that when I start, uh, because bravery is, uh, if you look at the 24 uh, via character strengths, one of my top five, three of them are wisdom strengths. And again, I'm a big nerd, but one of them is bravery, right? And so whenever I'm getting emotionally exhausted and I'm not applying myself to think deeply, it's like, oh, that person's a coward. Oh, that person's, a- Bobby, everyone's a coward. Come on, come on. You can No you can- way. <laughs> it ain't. It ain't so. <laughs> right. And so, good, good, good check in there. So, but you're right. So there's lots of reasons where they could, um, a team could be in the low diversity angle. Uh, now, could I, so what's the opposite? How can a team be in the dangerously high diversity angle? Um, yeah, that's many the thing. Perspectives, uh, it, with with psychological safety. Um. With psychological safety, it can can definitely take more in, but Mm -hmm. um, part of the reasons we know that too much diversity is not good because it also then starts to tap into the area of compelling purpose. So another way to frame this would be um, if there are too many people valuing too many differing things and less and less delta, less and less overlap, uh, then the um, lived premise of how they are on the same side going after the same common thing is less and less present. So to reframe diversity, if you think- What what do you mean there? I mean, because shared goals are important. Shared goals, and exactly, shared goals are important, right? But there's something at a premise level here. And and it's it's great that you're actually hitting on these because you uh, you inherently have worked with enough teams and enough leaders. Different organizations, you know, <laughs> too many, right? <laughs> and so, in some sense, part of the giant dance of all this is that, in practice, it's not like you can actually isolate one of these variables or another. They're all very interconnected, right? It could you could totally see a situation where if you amp down on one, you would be adjusting another, and so you're actually dealing yeah. with a whole cascade of effects, right? Yeah. Um, the, the the point being with this, um, th- there is a happy medium that you're going after. Um, that it is it is possible to kind of kind of construct the wrong team, right? Um, there, Very. there, I think another one is also dealing with so so then uh, real real team is kind of dealing more with the size of the team, and um, it, so here's here's the weird thing about that. So the, the three components that were coming together for this are is the cha- is is the purpose challenging is it kind of provoking more out of people is the purpose clear is it uh which you could also see relates to like does everyone understand enough and are they on board with this and the last one is is it consequential or you could think of it as is it impactful is it kind of relevant and real right mm-hmm. um and no the, the more your team is experiencing that the more they have that sense of purpose uh so so back to that point we made it a, a, a you know narcissistic leader um often because nurses at their worst are pathologically irresponsible. And so the even if the mission is challenging, 
it's usually not very clear. And it's often because it is so much toned towards their own success and brand. It's also often not very consequential to, to the world or to others. It's not meaningful, right? You, at some point you realize you're living in their kind of success pipe dream. Yeah, I mean, but there's not a lot a person can do other than to leave if, if they're exactly. working with someone within uh, uh, in one of the clusters. Yeah, I, um, I agree. I agree. But but uh, but if there's if there is someone that's willing to um, you know make some deep changes and do some introspection uh, in in a leadership role, um, because not not everyone's gonna you know. Not everybody's going to do this, no, but not everybody's going to want to do it. Mm -hmm. But for those who do, you know, what do, what do they need? Uh, are the teams or the leaders? Well, the leaders, um, for one, because they need to set the stage for, you know, psychological safety and, and uh, pave the way with providing resources and other things. So in that sense, I, when I look at these different variables, I see that the leaders are very, very much key to assuming you can set the team up to get the first three, right? Which is again, is it a, is it a real team? I, I, I will, I'll touch on real team just a bit more. Um, yeah. When we say, yeah. is it real? We're talking about, is it bounded? Does it have a sense of here's what's in the team? You know, this person's in the team, this person is not. So there's a sense of, you could, part of bounded is about uh, shared identity, common identity. Is it stable, uh, which is to say, is it pr pragmatically stable enough that it, it's not in flux or jeopardized? Um, that's a lived experience again. Um, and the last one is, and this is um, a bit audacious because most work groups don't quite have this very high, but is it interdependent? which is to say, yeah, yeah. to what degree does one team member need to work with another? A, a lot of times when we're dealing with um, departments, different organizations, they're, they're not interdependent. People do different functions. Um, you, you go to that person when you need it, but uh, the, they don't have a strong reason they need to interoperate. And so they just end up being, so the, the formal literature term would be, uh, maybe they call them typical work groups or like classical work groups, right? Mm -hmm. And so there, there's no marginal boost or, or real cost for that, right? It's just how things get divided up. And so it's, it's not very compelling. Let me ask you this, uh, Bobby. The, yeah. You said uh, real teams have a common identity. Now that comes dangerously close to groupthink. What's the mm -hmm. difference? Um, because you, because part of right people is those individuals that come together to compose it. You could think of it as to say, are your individual skills and individual diverse identity, opinions, perspectives honored? And not just on a personal kind of respect level, but as like, like a good team contribution mm -hmm. is is there added unique magic you bring that the team is better off to ha have a part of bounded is so was that but that's more individuated identities um you mentioned sure, sure. common identities that, right. that's so, different um bounded is trying to grapple with um that so if, if you could think of some of these are actually that the team feels it is 
as a organized unit that it is something legitimate. Um, okay, that and, and that it, it is partly a kind of safety and partly a stability function, right? Um, so to put it in, in language that's um, accessible, it's more like they're part of the team and they understand what that means. <laughs> you know yeah yeah you could you could say that they're they this team seems to be real and they know they're now a part of it or they experience they're a part of it right but but um, that doesn't mean that they all think alike they all because they can allow creative tension to coexist within that structure mm -hmm. and and actually innovation teams particularly need that because again they need high psychological safety and they need a high learning orientation and so yeah. innovation teams and again a lot of uh, I think you know, any team could use that, though. Well, of course, any team does need it, right? And then it's particularly pronounced for the innovation teams because they're doing yeah. such uh, nuanced intellectual work. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> back to the point about the, the other three conditions, the three enabling ones, I would say mm -hmm. these are particularly good areas where a leader can shine because they are things that uh, would be over their control to, to a large degree. So. Um, so again, to recap, the first three are compelling purpose, real team, right people, right? You're trying to get those factors right. And those are the three essential conditions. Mm -hmm. so, so what are the three enabling conditions? Sound structure, supportive context, and team coaching. These are the three things that once you have those premises down, can then amp up performance even further. So um, structure actually has to do with... Um, does it have a sense of there are team norms? Do you, is there a healthy sense of knowing how your team operates? Um, how effective does your team design seem to be? Um, and is it a right team size? And so again, team size is one of those, um, there's a magic middle ground. And I, it's around five, six, um, I think even after seven, you start to see drops. Um, so, you know, one good example of teams which are too large are, so we've probably all been on projects or committees that just like everyone's there and there's just like two dozen people in a meeting and nothing gets accomplished and nothing that gets put forward can get decided on. So that, you know, that that's a great class example of, you know, that team is too big. It's not to say that there might not be stakeholder management reasons. You might not need input from other people, but the whole team yeah. isn't actually the two dozen people. The real team is probably just a- That's a core group. group. <laughs> right? yeah. um, so, I mean, it really, in that sense, you, you want to clarify what that meeting or what you're, what that is about and what that probably is more about is more like a marketing meeting or if you think about racy charts, it could be like, I'm trying to give you this data and I want a particular response back. But yeah, an, an interdependent team wouldn't be two dozen people, right? That would probably actually be already chunking off into like two or three teams of its own. Yeah. Or something What's like that. What's the right size of a, a, a high functioning team? Is there one? Uh, the, the optimal zone um, seems to be about, I would say six plus or minus two. So, you, so f like four to eight is a good number. Right. Mm -hmm. um, if it's too low, it's going to affect your skills and your diversity. Uh, mm -hmm. If it's if it's too high, we know that marginal um, uh, effectiveness per person goes down, and um, and and again, um, it becomes harder and harder to to make decisions, and you start to suffer on team size. Hmm. All right. It, that being said, there there's lots of different ways to approach this, and um, it's 
one of the good things about this is that at its simplest, a lot of these questions are about trying to aggregate team feelings uh, on, on particular topics, as well as parse out more objective data around performance. And so, I mean, the, some, some of these questions are a subjective sense of how does the team feel? Like, how does it feel to be part of this team, right? And so you yeah. can imagine if you ask that to a 14-person team, you're probably going to have 14 people that feel like, well, this team is a little big and nebulous, and I don't know what it's about, and, you know, Jane's in charge, but Jim seems to really run the show because Jim's the senior engineer who's, who actually knows what he's doing, or right? Uh, like, all, all of that stuff will come out, right? And, you know, it seems we only really need these core four people to actually run it, or, or maybe just the opposite. I mean, maybe... Maybe they all are excited that they're part of it, but they don't know what their role is. So they're like, this is exciting. I want to be part of this. And then now you're starting to get to task design and things like that. And they're like, I don't know what I do. I don't know what the norm is, but this, this is cool. I like that I'm here. I'd like to ask two questions before we wrap up. One is um, the valence or the mood or the climate of a team. Um, we didn't say much about that in terms of emotional intelligence. And, and then once, so share a little bit about how you manage that. And um, because morale is and engagement are, you know, important to everybody. Of course, of course. And, and then um, if you can just wrap up with your final um, bit of advice you'd like to share. Yeah, certainly. Um, so... Even you know, back to the, the TDS uh, end of things, when you're doing the team coaching, even the, the content of what you're focusing on is reflective of how well the team is doing. If they're wanting uh, feedback, you're able to talk about their tasks or something else about organizing better, those are good conversations to have, right? If what you're doing as a coach is, is constantly just interpersonal firefighting between them, that's actually bad. You know, The team is so mismatched and poorly designed that you need to keep kind of emotionally mandating things, right? So that's, you know, you're, you, have, you have your essentials kind of mixed up to begin with. Um, so the, don't, if you as a coach, if you find yourself in a coaching role of putting on that coaching hat and all you're doing is just emotionally kind of calming people down and trying to make them get through the day, you need to really stop and rethink like, whoa, how have I screwed up these essentials and how can I, how can I fix them? How can I, how, how could this be different? Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I would say is that, and there's a billion ways you can slice this, but um, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. You need a combination of people, you need a combination of perspectives, you need a combination of skills. If this isn't showing up um, by the get-go, you are already sunk. You, it's no longer this good to great performance question. It's you don't have enough of the essentials there. Yeah. You know, I've seen where some managers, if they're asked to, uh, for instance, create a strategic plan, they'll go mm -hmm. in their office and, and create the plan and not involve anybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know uh, what I mean? And they won't pull in their best analysts or the most experienced people there who've, who've done projects before. Um, that yeah. can happen. That can happen. So I, what you're saying is very important, that that interdependency and the, uh, the diversity of skills actually makes, you know, provides a better solution in the end. It, it does. And actually, in that sense, you could think of, in a very pragmatic level, part of what the group input does um, is not just raise the average quality, but it actually reduces the variance. And so it's the difference between saying, you know, 
and the, you know, I may or may not kind of achieve this thing myself versus if I do this in a team, I'm yeah. basically ensured to have a good professional caliber result at the end of this because I have more minds and more people error checking it and making sure that on multiple levels and perspectives, this is rock solid. This is workable. This makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and who wouldn't want the, the, the security <laughs> of, of, you know, I feel most, more secure if I would have, you know, gone at something from every possible angle that I could think of and that the, the team could think of rather than getting caught, you know, off guard. <laughs> I agree. And, and that's the healthy attitude. And I think it's also a very much an authentic leadership attitude that by opening up yeah. and by being clear about what's possible, you can actually rely on other people's skills. I yeah. will say sometimes, and I, I, I actually tend to see this particularly in young startup managers who haven't developed these easy few skills. I sometimes see them in a double bind gap where they don't have the skills or background themselves to solve what the problem is. But for various reasons, I think sometimes because they don't want to signal to their investors and, and, and stakeholders that they might be weaker and incapable in some way or, or somehow not suited to this, that they don't ever want to bring in someone outside or some experts or hire the right people to do it. And so they're in yeah. this, basically yeah. it's like they won't do it, they won't let others do it, so this right. problem is their investors. <laughs> bad the first six months in and it's critical six years along because it's getting worse and it's becoming yeah. a giant um it, and it could be a particular thing which becomes an unspeakable High risk. or it could be a, a lopsided culture which is um, yeah. i sometimes i'm seeing it in in uh, uh so one one instance is cultures that tend to come from strong innovation and research backgrounds but don't haven't developed enough uh practical business acumen on what they're doing they That's have right. this um kind of pointless playground kind of tone where they're dealing with cool topics N nothing is really deployable yet and there's there's no business products and there's really no way to generate revenue or interest in being a sales organization but they they love the notion that they have this company of one or two dozen people and they're doing their own thing but the notion that no no we need to become a business sales organization like we have a cool product and we need to get better at selling it and, and there's a systematic way to approach that uh, it's like, no, no, we, we think this is, you know, we think the playground is fun. It's like, okay, well, um, sure. You know, as, as long as you're getting mana from having investments, I suppose you can think that way for a while. Yeah. All right. Well, one short comment from you. I think we're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, close and, uh, and yeah. any, any team, um, any team can can become excellent. It is really not rocket science, and there are there's as much data as you want to dig into it. But it's honestly not that complicated. the The, the final things you're looking for in all of this is that what is your task performance like? Um, what is the membership membership satisfaction, which is essentially how happy are the team members and engaged are they? And last one is how how good are the group processes, right? If you can find ways to make those work, um, you're headed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Those are good pragmatic things that you can always look to. Are we are we happy? Are, are our tasks getting done? And do we like the way we're approaching change and decisions and operating with each other, right? Those are three good gut check questions to ask. Um, on, a, on a more personal level for leaders, it would be a matter of saying, okay, I'm, I'm operating in a certain way now. Is, is there something I could be shifting which is going to make me operate better and be more prepared for the future? Is there something I'm willing to cut away or transform which can actually make me a more available leader 
or make me more aware of the areas in which I'm, I'm failing so that I'm allowed to grow. More connected. Ah, powerful ending. With that, I'd like to thank you for this interview, Robert. Your thank you. Insight, <laughs> your insights will certainly help our audience to diagnose and resolve team performance gaps in ways that can support healthy cultures. And in closing, I'd just like to say this has been Yvette Bethel and Bobby Robert Ogilvy. <laughs> and we thank you for taking the time to join us on Evolve. Thanks for listening to Evolve, reinventing leadership, building freedom cultures. Visit ifbcentral.com to learn more about how you can reinvent your leadership and transform your team, starting with trust. Thank you.